This is The Shift Podcast. Today on The Shift Daily Podcast, everyone's a critic, and that's a problem. We get into how criticism has changed in the age of social media, particularly around music and other topics. Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan has sent ripples across Asia and around the world. Jonathan Berkshire Miller, director of the Indo-Pacific Program and senior fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute, helps us understand China's motivations and Canada's place in Asian politics. He also shares former Japanese PM Shinzo Abe's lasting impact on Japan and in turn, all of us. Are you okay with retirement? And how about pirates? All of this and more on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Curious about your thoughts on this. And it's inspired by friend of the Shift, Alan Cross. His podcast at CuriousCast.ca, the ongoing history of new music is just dynamite. If you've heard him on the radio, whether it's on Edge 102 or all those in Toronto, he's just the best. And uh, he, he wrote this. It's called One of Today's Most Hazardous Jobs is Music Critic. Here's why. And I'm reading this uh, from his post. Back when music was expensive and required to effort to acquire, people did their research before opting to buy an album or a single. That meant turning to the record review section of magazines like Rolling Stone, Spin, Mojo Q, or dozens of others. Today, though, the landscape is different, largely because of social media, something pointed out by Thomas Hobbes writing in The Telegraph. To browse the review section of Enemy's website in 2022 is to witness fawning four out of five write-ups that tend to frame every other artist as a genius. Almost all songs are cathartic and shy away from criticism. Why? Blowback from fans, especially those organized into hardcore evangelists and protectors of the bands of artists like Beyonce, Taylor Swift, Lady Gaga, BTS, and Harry Styles. Say one negative thing and they behive. The Swifties, the Little Monsters, the Army, the Stylers will seek you out and destroy you on Twitter or in the comments section of any online post. These stands, obsessive, zealous, highly motivated fans of a particular celebrity. They'll stop at nothing to make sure you understand that you are not only wrong, but stupid, thoughtless, tasteless, and worthless. So we have crazed fans and critics. And that got Ryan and I talking about, about exactly that. You have all of these people in today's world that are critics so you have the defensive bullying if you disagree you can't disagree anymore and this is the thing there are so many social causes in the world today that are all about inclusiveness bring the people together we're all woke except if you disagree then you're out and it's much like the prime minister had said when he talked about India's farmers, about how the government should listen to the farmers, even though they disagreed and get into conversation with them. Well, then you put a bunch of truckers in Ottawa, and now they're outsiders, right? Now they, now they have, you know, absurd opinions and all of that. So this is a major, major trend. And from this particular conversation with Alan Cross was that he's saying, like, nobody dares speak out because you'll get roasted. So crazed fans and critics. I'm Shane Hewitt. It's The Shift. Ryan O'Donnell uh, is in Calgary. I'm in Calgary, too. Ryan, what do you hear there inside critics and music? Okay, so I watch a guy on YouTube 
called Anthony Fantano. Anthony has been reviewing music on YouTube pretty much since YouTube started. He's got several million subscribers across two different channels. And Anthony is a very intelligent music critic. This is not the this is the kind of guy who looks into the heart and soul of the music, but very much so the technical. He listens for the production, the design, the layouts, the every detail. This guy does his research. He takes his time to do his interviews or his reviews, which is an important thing. He doesn't just post a review of the album 30 seconds after it comes out like everybody does. Right. Anthony puts together very thoughtful reviews, but he's also incredibly divisive. He has opinions on albums that people disagree with immensely. There is a particular Kanye West album that he gave a six out of 10, I believe, and everybody thinks it's his magnum opus. He got so much blowback for that, that 10 years after that album came out, he did the review again just to say, yeah, guys, it's still a six. And what he does is really awesome. He puts together fantastic videos. I love it. But if you go into the comment section, there's sort of the split. There are the people that say, hey, I respect your opinion. I disagree or I agree. And then there are the people, like Alan mentioned, that are the rabid fans that see criticism as a personal attack. And that's what I've noticed. As someone who's grown up with music reviews on the internet, not in person, is that everybody takes things way too personally. I was I was even in the car with someone who was listening to the new Harry Styles album. And I said, yeah, he's got like a few good songs on here, but like most of this is really bad, but I'm really excited to see where Harry goes. I think he's definitely finding his heart and soul. He's going to do something cool here. And it looked like they wanted to throw me out of the car. Like, it's just a disagreement. And I, I just, I don't know, Shane, like, I just think people are taking it way too personally without mm -hmm. really putting the thought into why they disagree or agree. Well, the guy, as you describe it, comes across as somewhat of an expert maybe not in that style or whatever, but at least in reviewing music and everything else. So what is an expert, right? What is, what is a critic? What is an opinion? And, um, having an, like, who cares about your opinion? Like nobody cares about your opinion. Nobody really cares about your opinion, but here's the thing though. What is an expert? You see these people today, they go and they write all this stuff like this, but they're not an expert. Now, I do put a lot of the blame on the media sites. When you go on the CNN app, usually, at least what I do, you open it up. It's actually the opinion section that opens first, not the news section. In the last year, I would say, um, when more and more people have been being critical of what is fake news and opinion through COVID, that, and those two getting tangled up, I've noticed most of the, a lot of the news sites don't include opinion without openly declaring that it's opinion very much so right used to be just kind of like the opinion section and now they clarify that but then like what is an expert these people think they're experts that's the thing right like in order to be a music expert you had to have history like a guy like alan cross and you used to go and you used to have all kinds of experience you'd have something related field or at least super fan status for a long period of time and then you would critically write about the music it's a departure from their old style blah 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 but how is it that you're an expert everyone's an expert now everyone's a critic so what is critical is critical being right or a fear of being wrong 
That's the question. The first place I go to is people are afraid of being wrong. Uh, and I think it's okay to be wrong. If you're wrong, that means you can learn how to be right in a, in a, in a, you know, certain aspect, but, you know, specifically if we're talking about music, it's incredibly subjective and people I think don't understand that as much as they used to. And I mean, look, people have always taken musical opinions, you know, seriously long before the internet. You didn't, if you said you didn't like the Beatles in the 1980s or 70s, you know, you'd get just as, you know, attacked for it as you do now. It's just on a different platform. But if we're talking about being critical and what is, you know, being afraid of what's wrong is you shouldn't be afraid of what's wrong. You should be interested in what people have to say and what people have to think and realize that someone else's opinion doesn't change yours. And that's something that Anthony puts Anthony Fantano, the music reviewer puts in every single video he makes in the, the first title of uh, or the bio of every video is this is capital my opinion. He doesn't say your yeah. opinion's wrong. He doesn't say my opinion is right. This is my opinion. So the definition of critic comes in two forms on the Dr. Google. A person who expresses an unfavorable opinion of something, which I think is the primary way people hear critic today, because you're being critical of it. But critical of it doesn't have to be negative, unfavorable, right? Being critical of a situation can be pragmatic. It can be um, possible that you're attached to a different outcome, which is interesting. A person who judges the merits of literary, artistic, or musical works, especially one who does so professionally. Oh, there's a word. Professionally. Judges the merits of it. So someone who's a professional who judges the merits of it. See, that's where your Kanye West story comes in from your YouTube friend. Mm -hmm. Because that is a professional seeming based on the followers does it as a job who judges the merits of it you see that's different that's different than i don't like it you shouldn't like it and this is the thing right is that who cares i go through this with my beard every year because i start now in august growing my beard for christmas oh, that's and there great. are people in my life who awesome who also go and say um Every time I see them, oh, the beard. And then it's like, do you, how do you think that makes somebody feel? Mm -hmm. Like, why? I don't care. You know what I'm not doing is getting a look in the mirror in the morning going, oh, better shave this off because it's going to make Billy Bob upset. So why do you feel the need to be critical? Constructive criticism is not a thing. It's a bit of an oxymoron. In itself, juxtaposition, if you will. Mm -hmm. But you can't be constructive. You're just either constructive or you're critical. It's just a marketing thing that someone threw together to try to soften them and be like, hey, by the way, I'm going to tell you some stuff. It's going to suck, but it's going to help you. There's a really good phrase. It's um, tell people what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. And if this is, I love this phrase, and this is one of the ones where I remind myself all the time. If I feel critical, and we all do, by the way, Catherine sends it a text. She says, I'll admit, I'm critical. I hate music that sounds like blah, blah, blah. And I, uh, I'm i not diminishing your music. It's just I, your point, Catherine, but what I'm, it doesn't matter what you're – it doesn't matter. You have the experience of being critical. We all do it. Everyone does it. No one's free and clear here. But give somebody what they need, what not what they want, 
in order to get what they want. And that's where you expand the phrase. Let me give you, especially as parents, uh, parents, if, if parents were ever taught one thing, and I wish I was taught this when my kids were really little and not figured it out when they're about to graduate, give kids what they need, not what they want, so they can get what they want, right? Mm. Kids want a video game, give them what they need, the ability to earn, work, develop, save money, invest money, right? So they can buy the game. There's a great example that came out with a friend of mine, and she always said, don't ever say no to your kids when you go to the store and they ask you for something. Never say no. Can I buy this bike? Yeah. Do you have your money with you? No. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, then let's go home and get your money, count it, and come back and buy the bike. Oh, no. That's fine. I, my son did that. We were like, he was he was he wanted something. It was a couple hundred bucks. I said, no problem. Let's go home and get your money. He's like, well, no, I'm fine. I'm like, what? You don't want it? No. Yeah. He goes, well, no, I wanted it if you were buying it, he said. So critical. That's the critical, right? That's this expectation that we... Um, that people even care what we think. So what we've done in today's world is we had a bunch of professionals that had to get qualified to get jobs in order to share their opinion. And now we have Twitter, this whole world of people who are not qualified in any way to share their opinion about Kanye West's album or ACDC's album. And now they feel like, oh, I get to share my opinion now. But here's the catch. If a tree falls in the forest, does anybody hear it? cliche yes works really well if nobody reads the crap they write and nobody shares it then it never grows well why does somebody share those inflammatory opinions because then it gets some clicks and it gets them liked and it fulfills their insecurity and everything else so you end up with somebody who writes some unqualified thought process about something and they're entitled to write their opinion when it comes to this is my experience of da 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 but to call themselves a critic and a professional and to expect that their opinion carries any weight other than the fact that this is my experience of it, that's where they get lost. But then someone, in order to be right, shares, this guy's stupid. And now I've got to make you look wrong so I can look right. So you got the first guy who does not want to look stupid, so they try to write something smart. But it's really just not that they want to be smart. They just don't want to be stupid. And then you got someone else who wants to be right, who shares someone who is wrong in order to be, you see it? Can you see it happening? And then it unfolds. Now I'm going to comment on it. I'm going to make you look bad. Now I'm going to insult you because I feel bigger when you are smaller. I might not be bigger, but if I can make you smaller, then I don't have to get any bigger. And such goes life. And this goes on and on and on. This is just a fascinating topic. And I think Alan Cross is onto something so incredibly big with this. Um, can we link this, right? Is this a public link that we can share on the? It, yep, it's on the Global News website. Yep, absolutely. Awesome. So we'll we'll share it there. You can go to shiftheads.ca, go right to the global site, or go to our Facebook group. We'll have it up there for you too, so you can read it. Alan Cross's podcast on CuriousCast.ca and all your favorite podcast apps. The ongoing history of new music, and I, I guess my takeaway here, and I don't want to sound preachy, but I do want everyone to have this peace of mind, right? That when somebody said, "I went through this today," when somebody says something. You got to let it go because what is their, does their opinion matter to you? Because if it matters to you, then you step into it and you'd be like, well, that really hurts me. Why does that hurt me? It's our response. Like 
nobody, if nobody listening, then the speaking doesn't matter. It's why here on the shift I say, look, I can say a bunch of things, but the real gift that's given is you're listening here. I say it one time, it gets heard thousands of times. Where's the gift? It's in the listening. So if someone is being critical in your life that makes you feel crappy for whatever reason, look in the mirror and ask yourself, why does that make me feel crappy? You can talk to psychologists and do all kinds of reading, whatever. But the core of it is this. If their opinion doesn't really matter, it doesn't. I don't want to see anybody get hurt. Not for some guy who says that this album's terrible and you're an idiot. You know nothing about music. Those things stay with you for a long time. This is the Shift Podcast. There's been so much going on around the world. We've been so hyper-focused on Ukraine and Russia and most recently turbines. Canada got sucked into that. And now, by the way, we don't need the turbines. Looks like it was a little bit of a geopolitical test. Now, that's not my purview, but it seems obvious to me um, that that's the case. Jonathan Berkshire Miller joins us now. Um, Pan-Asia uh, relationships, politics, all those things. That's your world, Jonathan. Now, when we look at um, Russia, most people look at the Ukraine side only. The impact of things that have been going on includes everything to do with the Pacific Rim. Uh, maybe uh, take it where you want to start, because the original conversation here was Shinzo Abe in Japan. So uh, we'll get to that. But maybe just sort of take it where you're sitting today, Jonathan. It's great to have you here and, and let us know what your thoughts are to just get started. Yeah, well, thanks. It's always a pleasure to be on. Um, and I think you're right, Shane. First of all, I mean, we're starting on Russia and its its war in Ukraine. Um, we often forget. I mean, I think we think of Russia, you know, as a as a European, um, as a threat to Europe mainly, and a, a threat to the transatlantic. And I think this is a, from uh, the historical perception. But the reality is, Russia is also a, a very you know, significant Pacific country as well. It, it hasn't quite had the, the power um, uh, sort of posturing in the Pacific that it has in, in Europe, but it still does have resources there. And I think this is one factor. So, for example, um, we've noticed this in the wake of, of the war in Ukraine, um, but this has been pre-existing as Russia cooperating militarily with China. Um, their navies now encircling uh, Japanese islands, for example, in military exercises uh, and finding ways to come head to head with U.S. and its allies in that part of the world. So. That's one element that Russia is not just a, a European threat. But I think the second factor that we're seeing with this uh, with this conflict in Ukraine is that states in, in Asia are thinking, well, uh, what could come next in our part of the world? And if the global community is not going to stand up uh, for one large country taking advantage of a smaller country, in this case, Russia, with its unauthorized conflict in Ukraine, uh, what happens when it comes to the Indo-Pacific? Uh, and potentially this could be another country Maybe it's Russia, maybe it's China um, that takes advantage of its neighbors. So I think this is why states in that part of the region are really looking at this war. Um, of course, their hearts go to the Ukrainians, uh, but I think they're also thinking about the broader uh, challenge to, uh, to global order. Now, this does land everywhere, obviously. Um, we see, you know, over the north is Canada, to the east is Japan, and to the south is a myriad of all sorts of different countries with Russia being so big and all of that stuff. So what is the spillover? What is the conversation like when you talk to your colleagues around um, this global impact of everything that Russia is doing? And I go back to that point over the turbines with Ukraine and the natural gas is to, to believe that the intention is you know clear and innocent in any way. 
my opinion, just observationally, is that the evidence is there that it's been there all along. I think that we delightfully ignored it, but it, the evidence is very much there that they are out to do what they are out to do right now. And nobody's going to get in their way as far as they're concerned, including testing the waters, testing reactions and everything. So what are those um, Pacific folks saying about all of this? Well, I think, I mean, in, in many senses, they've uh, woken to this sort of uh, unfortunate, realistic, hard-edged world um, years ago. But I think this is another, you know, slap in the face sort of reminder for them. Um, and as it relates to Canada, and I think our Pacific partners are t- have been telling us this for several years um, uh, with some of the, the actions of China in the region, and I think uh, Russia's war in Ukraine is reminding them yet again of this, is that we are not in this uh, post-Cold War peace dividend. You know, after the Cold War, I think we talked about the end of history and, and you know, multilateralism will thrive and, and we'll all uh, go to the United Nations and, and, and be able to resolve all our problems. You know, we're not in this period where we throw throw uh, away all of these institutions, but I think we're realizing in Russia is, is a very clear example as a permanent member, only one of five permanent members on the United Nations Security Council, that if one of those five big powers decides to do whatever they want, there's nothing the international community can do to stop them. Um, so we have to find other means. Uh, we have to find other ways, other coalitions. And as this pertains to Canada, I think it's an inherently uncomfortable position for us. Um, again, we're used to working in the multilateral um, institutions and forums, and we feel like that is, is the best way to approach some of these issues. But the reality is it's not going to solve our problems. It's not going to solve the problems in Ukraine, uh, and it won't solve the problems in Asia as well in the future, uh, because China is, is another one of those uh, five uh, permanent members on the United Nations Security Council. How do they fix that, though? Can they? Like, it's not like you well, can just say, by the way, we're no more counsel. <laughs> well, I think there's a couple different paths. I mean, one path will be, and it's a long path that's already been, <laughs> people have been uh, treading down this path for some time, is reform. Um, obviously, I think there's been a, a need and continues to be a need to reform international institutions, the United Nations Security Council being one of them. There's been proposals and talks about expanding that permanent network of, of five states, uh, having more representation, for example, from countries like Japan, um, you know, the third biggest economy and another important democracy in Asia, potentially India, the world's largest democracy, and soon to be the world's largest population, um, maybe some representation from South America and, and Africa. So I, there's, there's, a, there's a notion, and I think it's a right notion, that the United Nations Security Council is out of date. The second tool in the, in the interim, I think, is to look at options outside of the United Nations. And again, this isn't to circumvent it, um, but to look at these dynamics, such as, for example, the Quad, where you have the United States, Japan, India, and Australia banding together, not necessarily as an alliance, but as like-minded states that share interests and values. Um, and this is the territory that I think Canada needs to get itself more involved into, um, even though it's, it's not necessarily uh, our comfort zone. Wow. Um, okay. So we have, you know, these deals, these side deals, these conversations about what's been happening, but it still does take action. I mean, in your uh, profession, your career, uh, I'm, this is, these are my words, not yours. You can, uh, you don't even have to agree. <laughs> you can just decline them uh, altogether. But I mean, pragmatically looking at these situations, um, it just you must bang your head against the wall jonathan i mean the reality is is that you're sitting down with all these people that are looking at everything from every single angle and looking at the decisions that are made and just banging your head going why don't you listen like can't you just you know like canada being self-sufficient is a great example i mean the 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 flip-flops on oil and gas even in the last week 
by the Canadian government with now all of a sudden saying that we have a responsibility to deliver natural gas to Europe. Like it, it is all over the map. It is meandering. It is wandering. It is lost. Uh, how do you how do you get through the day with all yeah. of that? Yeah, it's a trick. And I mean, it goes to the word of reactive and reaction. And uh, a lot of, of course, governments, uh, professions, any pro profession, we react to certain situations. That's okay. But when you're 100% reactive, uh, there's a problem with that. And especially uh, in, at this period globally, um, where a lot of issues require significant proactivity. So you need to be thinking not one day ahead, uh, not one week ahead, uh, not even one year ahead, but you need to be thinking in terms of decades. Um, and I think this is the challenge with the Canadian side, as you said, uh, on some of these issues, whether it's energy security, et cetera. They're, they're premising things on the situation today versus what the situation uh, very likely could be uh, in a few months and in a few years. And I think this is where we got ourselves into energy and security issues. The idea of net zero, I think, is excellent. I mean, no, nobody's going to qualm with the idea of, of this being a laudable goal. But the realities, um, number one, we have domestic economic realities within our country. But also there's international national security realities uh, that we're seeing now with our partners in Europe. Um, we may see this in Asia, where uh, they frankly need uh, energy to survive. Um, and uh, this is not just a luxury good, uh, an item that, uh, that, you know, that we can have have to heat our cottages and to go on extra road trips. This is actually for a lot of these countries, uh, nuts and bolts to heat their homes, uh, to, to cook their food. Mm -hmm. um, so this is this is an essential uh, item. So I think, I think we need some proactive thinking on it. Yeah, I mean, I think a great example of that is farming alone, diesel fuel for farming, and then of course, um, all of the related products for fertilizer. I mean, that's come up in the news lately too. Okay, uh, Jonathan Berkshire Miller here on The Shift. Let's shift to A, Taiwan, B, Japan, because I think Japan's probably a larger conversation. I have no idea why the speaker in the United States, Nancy Pelosi, goes to Japan. There's a bit of a history of that role person going to Taiwan, excuse me, and mm -hmm. um, and that just causes stress and tension. They're politically grandstanding, I guess. I have no idea. I just thought I'd ask, what's the big deal? Um, I, I guess that it's the alignment away from China, I'm guessing. Well, there's a couple angles you could take from it. I think, you know, it's a fair argument, and I think it was a you know pretty significant argument within the U.S. Uh, leading up to uh, Speaker of the House Pelosi's trip to Taiwan, whether she should have went or not. And I think a lot of that centered on, you know, is symbolism really what we need right now? Um, China is having a very significant meeting later this fall where uh, Xi Jinping, their chairman of the Communist Party, is likely to erase um, all uh, term limits, um, you know, potentially paving the way for him to be leader for life, quote unquote. Um, and so there's a lot of sensitivities uh, uh, around this uh, specific timing, in addition to the, the, the challenges between the U.S.-China relationship. Um, that being said, I think this is not a, a precedent breaker. I think, you know, in, in many ways, the Chinese are using this as a pretext to, to create a crisis. Um, as you said, Shane, this is not unprecedented. There, there was a Speaker of the House, uh, which is third in line to the president in the United States hierarchy um, 25 years ago from the Republican Party who visited Taiwan. So this is not a, a threshold breaking move. Um, and in addition to that, just a week before, we had a very senior delegation from Japan. Europeans have visited and within the past few months at a parliamentary level. So it, there is nothing necessarily disrespecting the idea of the one China policy, um, uh, which uh, which all of most countries have slightly different versions of, um, uh, but recognize there, there being only one China. Um, so I, I really think of this as the Chinese taking advantage of this situation, frankly, to use as a pretext to coerce Taiwan um, we see this now through cyber attacks, through sanctions on goods, 
um, and uh, military exercises uh, that are, you know, to link this up with Japan that are coming dangerously close to Japan. Um, Japan's waters are only 100 uh, miles away from, from Taiwan, uh, and we're seeing, I think, uh, at least five or six ballistic missiles uh, today um, fell into Japanese uh, EEZ, which is their sort of exclusive economic zone, the waters around their territory. So this is a, a significant escalation. Okay, and um, the changes in Japan. We've got Shinzo Abe's assassination um, come as a surprise, I, I suppose, to most. And then um, shifts that he had started with his party when he was leading the party and then still supporting and, and uh, you know, he was advocating for other, you know, politicians at the time when, when all this happened. So what do we need to know about what's been going on with Japan from any of the contexts that come to your mind? Yeah, well, I think Abe's assassination was a real shock, uh, you know, obviously in Japan and in the region more broadly. I mean, very quickly on Taiwan, I think Abe was one of the, the strongest proponents for a, uh, for a more principled and pragmatic relationship with Taiwan. And not reaching as far to say that, you know, Taiwan should become independent, but I think thinking that we should have a much more, um, you know, resolute and perhaps not ambiguous policy uh, to, to defend Taiwan from such coercion. So I think from the Taiwanese side, they were very... Um, shocked and, and, and upset um, with Abe's passing. I think more broadly, though, there's several takeaways for this, but the bigger thing I think about Abe's passing was, um, you know, like him or dislike him, Abe was, was a strong leader um, in a time, a strong leader of a democracy um, at a time when democracy don't really have strong leaders. Um, you look around, chain the G7, um, you know, with Canada, the United States, and our European friends, um, and there's not much, frankly, that inspires me when I look at the leadership. I look at uh, President Biden in the United States. You know, I look at some of the European leaders. UK, obviously, we don't even know who the next prime minister will be. Um, there's a there's a void of, of solid leadership, and even though Abe wasn't prime minister when he was was assassinated, I think his his sort of uh, shadow and his figure were, were so large that that is missing right now in the West. So that, so we lost a leader, um, not just of Japan, um, but I think more broadly of the West. And, and I don't know how that gap will be filled, when it will be filled, um, but it's an urgent need to fill it. What about military in Japan? That's been something that he was a proponent of that changing. This Russia-Ukraine thing on the other side of Russia has caused an awful lot of Japanese to go, uh-oh. And not to mention, I mean, that conversation started in Canada too. So you have these potential uh, tinderboxes, if you will, on all sides of Japan. What comes next, do you think there? Is it going to be this militarized Japan that can stand up for itself? Or is it going to be this... I hope the United States wants to protect us because if you look at the NATO conversation in Ukraine and the way the United States has gone about it there, it seems to be, you know, maybe that's not what you need to rely on. Well, I mean, I think the Japanese will often make a joke and I, you know, I would agree with them that they're, you know, one of the most liked countries in the world if you take away their immediate neighborhood. So, you know, you go outside of, uh, out of that immediate neighborhood and, and most countries are quite favorable with Japan, even countries in Southeast Asia where uh, where Japan during the war period, um, you know, committed acts of aggression and invaded. I think Japan has come to amends with, with many of these countries like the Philippines, uh, Myanmar, Vietnam, et cetera. Um, where the problematic relationships come, I think is exactly what we're talking about. It's, it's China, uh, it's Russia, um, North Korea, and unfortunately South Korea, which is a democracy, but there are challenges in that relationship. Um, Abe, I think, is looking at, 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 at sort of 
you know, remilitarization is one way to frame it. I think the Japanese often talk about being normal, um, you know, the, and, and, and there is some sense of, of reality in this. I mean, the, the, the world's third largest economy, does it make sense in that environment that they're in? Uh, and not to have uh, a proper military. Does that mean that um, you know uh, everybody wants an aggressive, well-equipped Japanese military? I don't think so. But Japan is not the Japan now of, of Japan in the late 30s or 40s, as Germany is not uh, the Germany that it was uh, in the war period. So I think this this idea of becoming normal uh, is the discussion in Japan right now. Um, of course, the U.S. will be a security provider, and I think Japan wants the U.S. to continue being a security provider. But they're increasingly wary that the U.S. has a lot on its plate, uh, not just uh, in foreign terms uh, with the war in Ukraine, but domestically, frankly. I mean, the U.S. Uh, it has a lot of challenges domestically. Um, and I don't think that the, that the Japanese and other allies are necessarily thinking the U.S. are going to abandon them in, in five or ten years. But I think there is a, a fair discussion saying, what, what can we do ourselves? Um, you know, we, we can't rely entirely on the Americans uh, to, to ensure our, our safety and security. And, and probably we shouldn't. You know, at, at the end of the day, each country is responsible for its own defense and security. So I think this is the discussion that Abe tried to um, yeah, kickstart and, and probably will continue under successors. Okay, so let's take the uh, let's go south in your Indo-Pacific focus and go to India. India has uh, been pretty quiet so far with the Ukraine uh, and been particularly opportunistic in good prices on oil. They themselves need to make sure that they bring in their energy. Um, impactful on everything that else is going on in all of this because they are shopping and, and not shutting down. I think it's you know so it's interesting how we view India and I think I mean this is. Um, you know, relates to India's membership in the Quad, as I mentioned before. Uh, my own sense on this is that uh, India's true value um, in our relationships is what's strategically in, in India's interests. And I think that is working together to push back against some of the assertiveness from China. Not to say it's not worried about the about the war in Ukraine or or endorses Russian behavior, or that we should endorse India's um, you know uh, gu guzzling of, of Russian gas. But at the same point, I also think we need to be careful about pushing India into a basket and saying, um, because that we're we're aligning with you on 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 issues in the Indo-Pacific, we feel India should be aligned with us on everything. Mm -hmm. The reality is, uh, you know, and I think India's foreign minister said this recently: uh, India is India, and India will pursue Indian national interests like. Canada pursues Canadian national interests or the U.S. pursues its national interests. So it requires a delicate balancing act. I don't think it's something we ignore. Uh, and it's something that has been brought up in, in discussions with the Americans and the Japanese. But I also don't think we should hector or lecture, um, you know, publicly and, and say that, uh, you know, perhaps India is, is it should not be our friend because uh, of how they're reacting to this. So it's, I, I think it requires a bit of a balancing act. Uh, when you said that uh, just like Canada protects its interests, it made me giggle. I was like, oh, really? Do we do that? I don't know. I don't feel like we do that. But okay. Um, I guess we do. But uh, this is it, right? You, the strong leaders thing really sticks with me. I mean, if you look at, uh, the, you know, the Boris thing, uh, Germany stuff, you know, even in Canada's foreign policy lately with the whole turbines thing recently and um, and love it or hate the other leaders that were more definitive um, they certainly, in, in a lot of ways, got a lot of stuff done. Whether you liked it or not, I suppose that will always be the question, but that's up to everybody's personal taste um, in this. Any other takeaways, Jonathan Berkshire Miller? The um, you know things we need to know that we're not talking about here, is, the, is there stuff that we're missing? 
Well, no, I mean, just closing on this issue of leadership, and I think, again, this is important, uh, you know, not just uh, for Abe and for Japan, but I think more globally is, is, is not having a vision for yourself or for your party, um, but having a, having a broader vision uh, that can transcend multiple leaders and multiple parties. And I think this is one thing, one lesson from, from Abe Shinzo, I think, and you know, his, his vision obviously was for what he calls the free and open Indo-Pacific, um, but it's not relegated just to his region. I think this is about upholding the rule of law, um, about free and fair open investment, about free data um, and ensuring uh, privacy and communications, and so many elements that all of us care so much about. And arguably, these are the these are the same freedoms uh, that we fought for uh, in two world wars. So, uh, you know, it, it, the interesting twist of history is that now we have the Japanese. Uh, and at a time when uh, Germany now is struggling from a leadership perspective, uh, but when Angela Merkel was in the G7 uh, before, we had the Japanese and the Germans being the, the bastions of, of the rules-based order uh, internationally. I mean, this is this is the, 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 the point in history that we're at right now. Um, so I think that we need to start realizing our equities and our stakes uh, as a Canadian um, uh, you know, political leader and, and, and find ways to pursue those. Well, it's interesting that you said that because what it brings up is um, that's where populism gets dangerous. If all populism is very appealing because it makes us feel like the things we're thinking about are getting addressed. But when there's no focus for the country, focus for the culture, then populism be kind of becomes this short-sighted wandering through political uh, events around the world. Is that, a, is that a fair ball? I think it's very fair. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's so appealing because it's convenient, right? But at the same time, if we don't have a place, well, it's like having a plan or it's, okay, I'm getting political here. Um, or it's like saying budgets balance themselves. Um, <laughs> they actually don't. They don't. No, do that. Take hard work. It takes hard work. <laughs> it does take hard work. Uh, thank you so much. Jonathan Berkshire Miller, Director of the Indo-Pacific Program, Senior Fellow, uh, joining us, McDonald Laurier out of Ottawa. It's great to see you, man. Look forward to connecting soon. Thanks a lot, Shane. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay with retirement? That's a nice dream. Doesn't that sound next uh, month? Doesn't that, yeah, neck. <laughs> That'd be all right. I I love the idea of it. I don't know what I would do though. Like it let's say I'm going to be, I think I'm probably, if I'm lucky, I'll retire when I'm like 80, you know, that's what I'm, I'm thinking just, just judging by how things are going right now. Let's say I retire then, you know, that makes sense. But if I retired at 60, unless I had a lot of money, I don't really know if I would enjoy not having something to do five days a week, but at some point, yeah. But I, I think I would, I, I don't know when the right time to do. be what shop for sneakers. Play with Lego, burn through Breaking Bad in four days. Again, yeah, but that's just like that's 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 one week right there. <laughs> I got a lot of weeks down the line. Just saying, seems to work for you. It does work for me now. Yes, it does. I can't wait to retire. Yeah. I don't think I'll ever actually retire, retire, but I do yeah. want to. I do look forward to the days of you know sort of running things just from home, and I realize I do that now, but I think it's more of like. Um, building the team, mm -hmm. running the show, you know, doing all that stuff. I look forward to that part, right? Like choosing my hours, freedom. Maybe that's what it is. Not freedom, free. That's even better. Well, this woman in Missouri just celebrated her 107th birthday. Yeesh. 
As a re- yeah, it's, we'll talk about a milestone. My God. As reporters flocked to her nursing home uh, to hear her story and get tips on how to live a long life, they discovered something very interesting. She was 107, and she retired at the age of 100. Velma Finger, known to her, her friends and family as Sally, marked the milestone over the weekend. Sally tells me on the day she was born in 1915, her dad hopped on a horse to go get the doctor to deliver her. Woodrow Wilson was president, and women couldn't even yet vote. She's seen a lot of changes in the century plus that she's been alive, including the widespread use of automobiles, electricity, and the computer. She worked as a manager at her housing complex up until seven years ago when she finally retired at the early age of 100. But Sally says looking back, what she's most proud of is her family. If you just ask me what I'm most proud, I'd say my granddaughter. I'm very proud of her. Had my great-grandchildren. They're two great kids. <laughs> so that's, that's the greatest thing I know feel like when I leave this world, I will leave the world a better place for my children and my grandchildren. Okay. No. That is not like the perfect perfect grandma story, grandma voice yeah. ever. I know. Right? Yeah. It's just like, it was, that was such a wholesome story. Like the fact that you retired at 100 is amazing. And that's where the REOK came from. But that was so wholesome, I almost put it in Good News Tuesday. That's how wholesome that lady is. That's amazing. That's from uh, KKTV.com, by the way. Uh, Mrs. Figner gave them some tips on how to live a long life and a happy life. She eats a lot of vegetables with olive oil and peanuts. She gave up meat for several years. She keeps her mind sharp by doing crossword puzzles and reading. She also credits exercise and her love of the game of golf. That sounds like what Ryan does, the old lady grandma voice. Yeah, like, my grandson, I want nothing but the best for my grandson. But that's literally all she wants, <laughs> which she is wants. just excellent. Yeah, I do that voice from a voice from a place of appreciation and love. I should make that very clear. <laughs> that's, that's very good. Okay, uh, let's Thank start you. this next Are You Okay With story with something completely out of context. Meanwhile. <laughs> SpongeBob, what's wrong? I don't know, Mr. Krabs. But I've got the strangest feeling that somewhere a pirate and parrot are arguing about me. And the parrot is winning. Dice! Doesn't dice! Doesn't dice! Doesn't dice! Okay. Catherine and Surrey's gonna be very happy for this yes, story. She is. Are you okay with parrots? That's right, Yarr. folks. Pirate, are you okay? Thank you. Yes. Are you okay with pirates? A man named you need to do it. Your back sense better. You do it. You want me to do it? Okay. All right. Yeah. I love this story so much, guys. Okay. Yar, a man with a big red beard, whose nickname is Redbeard, has okay. been arrested after allegedly bird napping his roommate's parrot. I'd be walking him off the plank if he did that on my ship. And of course, I'm serious when I say this, Redbeard is from Florida. I don't know how things work in Florida, which from your description sounds like a colorful, lawless swamp. (laughs) All right. Uh, 40-year-old Justin Peters of Summerland Key was arrested Thursday on charges of grand theft and animal cruelty. 
Monroe County Sheriff's Office spokesman Adam Lindhardt said the parents, 37-year-old owner, suspected in June that her, roo- her roommate had stolen her pet. <laughs> Wouldn't it just be like in the other room? According to WPTV5, she claims she repeatedly told Peters, who goes by the name, what, what's the name, Ryan, by the way? Redbeard. Ah, to leave the bird alone. Hey, man, leave my bird alone. <laughs> and that he didn't have permission to uh, take the bird out of its cage. A day earlier, the witness reported seeing Peters at a bus stop near his business. <laughs> the witness said he later noticed that Peters was gone. But there was a red parrot on the bench. He took the red parrot, then called deputies. The bird was taken to a veterinarian and treated for multiple injuries. I still don't understand. Did the bird come home or was this a different bird? No, no, so the so Redbeard <laughs> Redbeard stole his roommate's parrot uh-huh. and then uh left his work with the parrot on the shoulder and then i think what happened was he was handling the bird very incorrectly which injured the bird so he Mm. left it and then the witness found the bird called uh police who then rescued the bird and then uh and then went to go uh make you know red beard uh pay the fine (laughs) okay well the bird is okay the bird is okay. The bird has, living, needs to go through surgery, but the bird is if, okay. If you're living with somebody named Redbeard and you own a parrot. Yeah. <laughs> See? Like, See? This is a real thing that happened. This is a real thing that police, the police had to file a report on this. <laughs> Some poor guy, the new guy. Hey, new guy, you got to write this report. This is one of my favorite Florida stories of all time. I love it so much. Are you okay with? Ooh. Ooh? The Batmobile. Damn right I'm okay with the Batmobile. It's like... I'm Batman. You can't have Batman without the Batmobile. You know, it's like the two go hand in hand. And I love that it's not... Like every different comic you read, and I read a lot of comics, the Batmobile looks different. There's always some artist's take on it. And I, th- I think my favorite might be the one in the new Batman movie where it's basically just a Dodge Challenger with a rocket engine strapped to the back. It was beautiful. It's like the Cape Crusader without his car is like Superman without his cape. It's that important. I don't know, man. It's got to be like, it's got to be the Batmobile. It's got to be unique. Yeah. Even the Bat motorbike was a little bit of a stretch. There's a lot of Bat vehicles. There's the Bat boat, the Bat plane, the Bat shuttle, the Bat tank. There's, there's everything. You just put a bat in front of it, bang, it's Batman's. But it works. All right. So probably the coolest fantasy car of all time, we have going to admit, even back to the old one from the 60s, the you know the convertible top, you know, two little pods. So many custom car people have worked hard to recreate that style of car in, you know, custom cars. 1960s Adam West era, black, red pinstriping, the, the first and the best, in my opinion. To the bat ball, right. Love it. There I'm Batman. Okay, based on the Lincoln Futura concept car, the OG Batmobile was sleek, red, and black, and fast. Uh, no wonder people would pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy replicas of it. There was one place in the world that is licensed by DC Comics to actually build them, and this is owned and operated by Mark Raycop. He loves Batman, and so does one of his clients, 
Un- unfortunately, <laughs> that client is starting to look like actual Batman. I'm sorry, Ryan, I got to do it. It's okay. Un- yeah, yeah, yeah. Un- unfortunately. Yeah. There's actually a Batman villain called uh, Typo Master who just puts typos Ooh. right in my stories. I've been asking Batman to take care of him for a while, but I think he's a little yeah. busy with actual villains. Yeah. Unfortunately, that client is starting to look like an actual Batman villain. Sam Anagnatsu Anagnatsu from California. Ray Cop says Anagnatsu missed a $20,000 payment on his vehicle. Then he disappeared. He's used the bad side. Uh, After he missed the payment, Ray Cop moved his car to the back of the line to be finished, which meant Anagnatsu. I wouldn't get his Batmobile for a year and a half or two years. Rakop says that infuriated Anagnatsu, who filed a complaint with police in California, but the San Mateo district attorney didn't bring criminal charges. He didn't get what he wanted, so he called his friend. ABC 7 in San Francisco discovered Anagnatsu asked his friend, the sheriff, to intervene. He sent a lieutenant, a sergeant, and two deputies 2,200 miles across the country to Rakup's garage. And Ignacio says his car doesn't exist, but we are in Rakup's garage, and he says it's right here. It's the allegations being made that have the pastor and Batmobile builder frustrated. To have this as an attack on my moral character is, is unbelievable. ABC 7 obtained receipts showing the trip cost the San Mateo Sheriff's Department more than $10,000. Everybody else on the planet has said that this is ridiculous. Rakeup's bank account has also been frozen. He has also been charged with two felonies in California, obtaining money by false pretenses and diversion of construction funds, which can come with a jail sentence of up to 10 years. It's sad and angering both at the same time. It's it's multiple emotions simultaneously. Now, Rakeup has to travel to California to appear in court. And I'm out there to say two words, not guilty. That's from WRTV. We do have some poetic justice to report, though, as Anagnatsu's Batmobile, which has since been fully paid for, will sit. That's because no work can be done during litigation. Oh, that even just stalls it longer. So he's probably going to have to wait like three years now to still get his car because he called his friend the sheriff to go take a look at this because he didn't get what he wanted. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.